0: Ladies and gentlemen, bringing you another episode of Straight Talking English. I believe this is season two, episode 12 on The Bad Boys of Verona. My name is Catherine. I am your host, as ever, taking you on a whirlwind tour through the GCSE literature texts. We are still on Shakespeare. What could be more exciting than that? And let's just jump straight into this. Let's talk about male friendship. First of all, in 1990, a really good article that I read by Alan Bray pointed out that a lot of the aspects of relationships between men in terms of like friendships associations could be seen as borderline homoerotic to us in its expression the act of um male on male love sodomy is a disgusting crime no 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 terrible 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 but in a world without heating it would be perfectly reasonable for two men to share a bed and have like a cuddle for heating site. And saying that you were someone's bedfellow suggests taking them into your confidence, being someone you implicitly trust. Physical affection between men, like having a little kiss, a cuddle, sorting out their shirt, leaning on their shoulder, just means that you really, really trust the other man. And a lot of the ideas and what was an acceptable male friendship came from the ancient writer Cicero. We can say that a lot of... The love experienced by men, in terms of like friendship love, is what we can call neoplatonic. So you've got these guys who are best friends, but what is the bad side of this? I'm referring to a book by Terence Hawkes. The bad part is the source of periodic bouts of moral panic, the band of half-starved, half-crazed figures who were beginning in increasing numbers to gather on the periphery of communities in the early modern period, haunting the outskirts of villages and the suburbs of towns, wandering across inhospitable open places. Unhoused, ungoverned, unrestrained, they were known as masterless men, a title which gives clue as to some of the social presuppositions defining their situation oh my gosh so basically if you're unemployed if you don't have someone explicitly telling you what to do you are a massive danger and should be feared. And while these guys aren't unemployed per se, they are very much masterless men just like sitting around Verona like trying to kill each other. So let's take him one at a time. Let's talk about Tybalt. Tybalt is my favourite character by the way, just because he's so evil. he's the counterpoint to the romance in act one scene five so in the middle of all this slushy slushy dear saint palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss holy shrine blah 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 and then they make out tibble is the other half of that coin to quote the writer susan schneider the overruling of tibble is significant in act one scene five because tibble in his inflexibility is a potentially tragic character indeed the only one in the first part of the play if we recognize in him an irascible humor type we should also recognize that he is similar to the tragic hero. Tybalt alone takes the feud very seriously. It's his inner law the propeller of his fiery nature his natural frame of reference is the heroic one of honor and death Tibble's single set of absolutes cuts him off from the whole range of speech and action available to the other young men of the play lyrical love witty fooling friendly conversation ironically his imperatives come to dominate the play's world only when he himself departs from it while he's alive Tibble isn't a well it's true it's true he is the only super grumpy one so i get a lot of my resources from charity shops or secondhand online and someone's annotated what i've just read as why armor trading caster's tea and i I really really don't know what that means but it might be significant this person wrote it why armor trading caster's tea so make of that what you will make of that (laughs) We can also argue that Tybalt is a restructuring of one of the classic Greek stock characters from the world of classical tragedy, because he Shakespeare doesn't like to use the traditional characters of tragedy. He likes to make up his own. As we look for Macbeth, he twists our expectations of tragedy. But Tybalt is one of the archetypes on the three stock characters in ancient Greek comedies, he's called an Alazon. That's an imposter who sees himself as greater than he is, or to be more technical, the braggart soldier. And that fits Tibble to a T, doesn't it? Show off, loves fighting. But after Tibble dies, Romeo becomes the new Tibble. I mean, you could argue that at least, couldn't you? Once. I has died. Romeo's future is now determined. He must kill Tybalt. He must run away. He is really his fortune's fuel. The feud becomes the law inside Romeo. Before then, like, it was external. It was avoidable. We can just ignore it. Now, it moves inside Romeo to be his personal law. This is why he takes over Tybalt's rhetoric of honour and death. Acts 3, scene 1. He says, Alive in triumph and Mercutio slain, away to heaven, respective lenity and fiery eyed fury be my conduct now. Now, Tybalt, take the villain back again that late thou gavest me. Oh, look, he's talking t- in imperatives, and doesn't he sound like Tybalt? But Tybalt himself isn't actually really explained, he isn't really given a backstory. To quote the writer T.J.L. but Tipple is the agent of these circumstances he creates the tragedy the first reason for this is his complete lack of detailed characterization he consequently offers no purchase for an attempt to relate him into a social background moreover the feud between the families is explicitly renounced by old capulet the feast and tybalt's rebellion against his prohibition is given no context of social causation beyond his own will- willfulness Basically, there's no reason why he would start fighting, except he's awkward. Again, at no point in the play are we able to connect, it's Personae to any set of relations that could be called such social process however much we make of the realistic detail associated with the capulet's household he just comes out of nowhere being evil like there's just like no reason and he's not explained why he's so angry i mean like a simple backstory like in othello where iago claims that othello slept with his wife like just one thing from tibble saying like and my dog was killed in a fight or something like that but if he comes out of nowhere then couldn't he be destiny is he written in the stars as being what's called the tragedy crib says in this context of medieval renaissance natural science the fiery tibble and his willful collar might perhaps signify the determining influence of the stars so willful collar it means that in medical terms Time he just is a badun. He's just bad. He's bad in his body. Tibble then is an agent, not merely of the stars, but of the metaphysical paradoxes which present the lovers both as star-crossed by p- misadventured, piteous overthrows, and as heroes of love who triumph over the stars through love itself. But t- Tibble is the principal opposite to love. Tibble is hate he is just pure hate running around all right so let's let's take on our hero now let's take on romeo he starts off when we see him as this awful posturing he don't do anything he just sits there he feels bad about himself but McKing, another writer argues that romeo's death marked imagination is directed towards violent encounters and self-enhancement and already formed, even scripted, before the action of the play begins and does not significantly change throughout the play. He is in love with love. Before we even meet him, it's written in his character, I mean like his personality, that he wants the violence of love, the violent feeling. He wants to be presented in a certain way. And he is impulsive and it is drama, but he's poetizing throughout the whole play and reaches its grand climax in his dying speech we can see this whole thing as a weird kind of performance like he's acting on his own script other people's intonations other characters intonations change in and out but romeo is consistent until this great final speech that it becomes this like beautiful final eulogy and in fact it's Romeo's transformation from being this stereotypical lover that Shakespeare sets up as something to mock in the comedy half of the play and this turn towards him finally getting his soapbox and finally getting to have this great tragic love story that he's always wanted that makes this so interesting i don't like romeo's character i never have and because it's my podcast i'm probably not going to talk about him that much but it's that turn how easily someone can go from a stereotype to being dark being dark as i've been watching mr robot recently kind of a lot and I've just finished season 3 and the prison warden who starts off all nicey nicey and he's got the nice dog and then you realize just in one shot that he is so evil that's the moment that's conveyed by Macuto's death at the end of act 3 scene 1 oh let's talk about Macuto because Macuto is my second favorite after Tibble I know I shouldn't play favorites But I always do have favourites. Mercutio is difficult to pin down. Dryden thought Mercutio was Shakespeare's rather ill-bred idea of a gentleman. So is he just supposed to be a fashionable man? The great writer Coleridge thought he was a man possessing all the elements of a poet. So is he representing poets? I don't know, think about his name, Mercutio, it's Mercury, it's Mercurial, he's not supposed to be a character that you can pin down and summarise, he's supposed to be more than that, he's supposed to be flitting around, like, just doing his own thing. He provides an opposition to Romeo, when Romeo is mooning over Rosaline, Mercutio shows up, my mood again. Mercutio's levity, on the other hand, is heightened by his baldy quibbles. Mercutio appears in earlier versions of the tale in what, what is significantly known as a lady killer and his dramatic purpose at this moment of the play is to oppose a cynical and aggressive idea of sex to Romeo's love idolatry and so sharpen the contrast already made in the opening scene. Yet just as Romeo's touch of self-parody then showed him to be ready for a more adult love so mercutio's queen mab speech implies that his cynicism does not express the whole of his temperament the falsity of both cynicism and idolatry already felt to be inadequate by those who hold these concepts is to be exposed by the love of between romeo and Juliet. he is the opposite to Romeo. Romeo's like oh Rosaline, you're so holy and Mercutio's like we well, should just get her number, get her number, invite her around to, I don't know what people do. My friend once invited a guy around to make some brownies um, not a euphemism, no she genuinely wanted to do some baking and eat an extra pair of pans. So Mercutio's like well invite him round to do some baking <laughs> I i I think that would work, actually. I imagine Mercutio would be a terrible baker and they'd just be like flower up the wall and he'd be doing a little dance or something. But even though I'm making light of it, does he know more than he's saying is the question. Does Romeo know or does Mercutio know that their love will lead to death? Mahmood again. Like many of Shakespeare's characters, Mercutio dies with a quibble that asserts his vitality at the teeth of death he jests as long as he has breath only if we ask for him tomorrow shall we find him a grave man but it's a grim joke to would accompany a dying scene the Elizabethans who believed in the power of curses would have seen in the play's subsequent events the working out of Mercutio's cynical knowledge that love is inseparately commingled with hate in human affairs does he know that it's going to that everyone's gonna die does he cause it by putting this curse on them a plague on both your houses does his death mean the death of comedy oh yeah yeah this is the point where it turns but is he comedy personified against the tragedy? Susan Schneider. He is the best of game players, endlessly inventive and full of quick moves and counter moves. Speech for him is a constant exercise in multiple possibilities. Pums abound. Roles are taken up at whim. And his queen Mab bring, brings dreams not only to lovers like Romeo, but to courtiers, lawyers, parsons, soldiers, maids. These have nothing to do with the case hand, which is Romeo's premonition of trouble, but Mercutio is not bound by events. They serve him merely as convenient launching pads for his flights of wit. When all this vitality which has till now ignored all urgencies is cut off abruptly by Tybalt's sword, it must come as a shock to a spectator unfamiliar with the play. In Mercutio's sudden, violent end, Shakespeare marks, the birth of tragedy by making it coincide exactly with the symbolic death of comedy the alternative view the element of freedom and play dies with mercutio there were other options there were courses of freedom they could have walked away until the point where mercutio dies from that point on there is nothing anyone can do according to lots of people much smarter than me (laughs) we're saying he's representing comedy we're saying he's representing the other choice but before i go i'm gonna offer you another interpretation of what mercutio might present mercutio embodies a strand of elizabethan literary culture according to the writer Ralph. Berry. Mercutio's out of tempo language which swaps Transcendent romance for sexual explicitness is aligned with an emerging trend for satire found in the work of Joseph Hall, John Donne, and John Marston. Mercutio's verbal challenge to the play's romantic dialogue doesn't last, but in his demise his realist voice is replaced by a still more forceful intrusion of the real death. Is he satire? Is this, like Tibble, another character who is a pure function? to laugh to make comment on to drive the action for the real plot and this is a weird play because unlike many of shakespeare's it doesn't have a weird subplot like what you see is what you get it's a weird one isn't it that is the bad boys the bad boys of verona next up i'm gonna be talking to you about juliet and her family and what really was lord capulet's plan Remember str8 talk English on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com Spotify SoundCloud iTunes Castbox and Stitcher. I'm on Insta and I'm on Facebook as well. Search for me, join the group. I tell really really bad jokes cuz like you know I do. That's my thing. Have a lovely lovely evening. I'll speak to you guys very very soon.